Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So this episode is extremely, extremely special to me. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sedi Frederick. Sedi is the chair at NHS Middlesex University Hospital. He's an entrepreneur. He is a coach and a mentor. He also sits as a non-executive director. He has a background in the public and private sector and for over 25 years held chief executive level positions in housing associations, social care and organisations that supported older people living with learning disabilities, autism and mental health problems, as well as children, young people and families. So I really wanted Seti to come onto the podcast to share his journey of becoming a chair of an NHS organisation and at the time of recording We believe that there are 233 NHS trust organisations, and I think that includes community, of which 10 people are from an ethnic minority background. So of the 233 organisations, only 10 have chairs that are from an ethnic minority background. And I wanted to understand and I wanted Sally to share what that feels like, how that came to be, what changes need to be made and how he has navigated the NHS. And what you just hear is just two people chit-chatting away and just sharing our experiences. And, you know, we share many similarities. I won't waffle on too much in the intro, but I really really hope you listen to all of this. It doesn't matter what colour you are, doesn't matter your background. I think it's a really interesting conversation. And I think we were both really honest at one point. I thought, well, many points, I thought I was going to cry. And I think that as far as I think that I've come, there's still a long way to go in being able to feel fully confident in where I am and bringing my whole self to work when I'm very mindful of the conversation around racism, the stereotypes, and trying to navigate that world. And we discuss that. So I'm not going to ruin the ending. (laughs) Please, please listen and please share. I really would like you to share this episode, please. And I'll see you in the next episode. So I'm going to jump straight into this interview. Sadie, could you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, So I am the son of parents who came to England in 1955 from Grenada, a small island in the Caribbean. Uh, My father came uh, first and found somewhere to live and my mother uh, followed. So I often start with who I am rather than what I do. And that's been a big part of my life lesson. So a husband uh, to Sue, married for almost 42 years, a father to Tom and Chris. Tom is 
uh, 40 and Chris is 38 and Pops two four amazing grandchildren. I'm a brother, friend, ally. So that's who I am. I'm not what I do. That's one of my biggest life lessons that I have learned. In terms of what I do now, I'm fortunate to have what I guess is described these days as a portfolio career. So I do lots of different things. And when I stepped away from full-time work in 2015, I promised myself I wouldn't do anything that wasn't interesting. So now I am chair at North Middlesex University Hospital NHS Trust. I'm an accredited coach, and I describe myself as a strategic coach and results mentor. Um, I've coached for many, many years, but what I found over the years is that people also need the benefit, I suppose, of my experience. So mixing coaching and mentoring um, has been, I think, really helpful for people I work with and the work that I do. I also sit as non-executive director on some other organizations. I recently uh, set up with two partners a health tech startup. I've tried other uh, businesses. So I set up a company that ran uh, retreats in Spain, but Brexit and the pandemic put paid to that. So I no longer do that. So I've done lots of different things. Professionally, my background originally was uh, housing. I worked for a local authority in London for 14 years and then went on to run a what was then called a BME Housing Association for almost five years and then transitioned across into social care and ran a number of provider organisations supporting people with learning disabilities, autism, mental health problems and um, older people in residential care and in their own homes. So quite a bit of a background. So going back, when you said, I have learned that I am not what I do, what was the moment or what led up to thinking, actually, I'm not going to introduce myself by telling people my professional title? I wanted to become a chief executive by the time I was 35. And I was able to achieve that running, as I mentioned, a small uh, black-led housing association in, in London. And for the following six to nine months, I must have given out about 2,000 business cards that said chief executive on. And I got completely caught up in the, in the role of being a chief executive because I'd achieved an ambition But then I started to uh, understand that actually that meant nothing. It wasn't about the title. It wasn't about the car in the car park. And gradually over time, I started to appreciate that actually it wasn't about the role that I had or the title that I, I had. Fundamentally, I had to be really authentic to who I, I was and gradually started to understand that it doesn't really matter what your title is. It doesn't really matter what you do. Fundamentally, it comes down to who you are as a human being. And just as we started talking, we were talking about imposter syndrome. And I was a bit like, oh, let's, I, wanna, I don't want to lose this. Do you think using the term imposter syndrome is, is not good, is bad when we label ourselves? Or do you think it's good to give a name to that feeling we all feel when we're thinking, I, I feel like I don't know the answer and everybody else thinks I do? Well, perhaps my definition of imposter syndrome is different to others. As I mentioned, and it's very timely given the age we're in right now, I grew up at a time when there was a view that black people couldn't really achieve. The expectations on us as black people was very low. And as my career developed and I started to ascend, I guess you call it the corporate ladder, it was almost a sense of, do I really belong here? Do I deserve to be here? I look around and I'm the only one. So I think by naming it, it enables you to develop, explore, 
the strategies that you need to deal with it. I think unless you are able to name it, it's then very difficult to reach out and explore what it really means and to put that it's like when you you have a pain in your leg or or, or something you know you're an ultra marathon runner I've heard your podcast <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying <laughs> where you talk about pain and, and 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 how you manage it and so on and so forth but if you have a niggle in your leg and it's diagnosed as a pull muscle you're then able to deal with it yeah they're able to develop the strategies you need to recover and to perhaps strengthen the muscles that you need to ensure that you don't hurt your leg next time. So for me, having a sense of imposter syndrome, a definition, so to speak, of imposter syndrome allowed or has allowed me to, to work on it. So I think it is important to your point. Okay. So I, I asked that question because I was having a conversation with a lady called Monique and she's been on the podcast and I was saying, I say I've got imposter syndrome and actually I feel like I've reached a level where I'm quite secure in my insecurity. And I just think I, I often have that moment or moments in the day or depending, especially when I'm talking to people like yourselves on the podcast but at the same time, I do just, I just think crack on Tara, you know, like there isn't time to sit there, but I do find comfort in it. But I suppose the lesson is, however we describe that feeling, it's, it may be unique to us that we have commonalities and we have to find the right language that speaks to us. And if some people think imposter syndrome is limiting, then call it some, something else. It doesn't matter. It's just putting a articulating the feeling so you can address it and then hopefully move on or move through it. Yeah. I wonder whether that is as a business owner where you have ultimate control over what you do, but in a corporate environment, when you are working in organizations that can be slightly more competitive, it's more difficult, I think, because people can use that against you to undermine your own self-confidence in terms of who you are. Earlier, we, I talked about you know, coaching, and I do a lot of work with, I guess, Afro-Caribbean black middle managers who are extremely talented, really ambitious, but lack confidence. And they lack confidence because the environments in which they have worked and do work do not enable them to develop confidence and we've seen that in the nhs and we've seen it in the in the in the world of charities and i know these two worlds pretty well and when i talk to middle managers many of them say well i know i can do that job i really do but when i go for that interview all of my insecurities come through and I can't manage them in that moment. I can't hold it together, but they know they can do the job. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking to people about is trying to get them to really live that self-confidence. And before uh, COVID and lockdown, we talk about how to walk into the room. We talk about how to open the conversation not to sit there passively in an interview, but to take control of the interview from the minute you walk in the room, making and maintaining eye contact, things like that. Once people start to understand those tools, then they find it easier to allow all of their self-belief that they have deep inside to come out. And I think that's really, really important because Generally speaking, people's journeys have been fraught with knockbacks and fraught with doubt expressed by other people. So it's really important to get that right, I think, Tara. When I first approached you to come onto the podcast, you said to me, I feel like I've forgotten, like, would people be, is it steadied out? <laughs> like people would have heard your story 
But what is really important to me about this podcast is it's not necessarily about attracting, you know, like the big names. I did want that in the beginning. But the best episodes are from like normal everyday leaders, usually the people that say, why would I come on? Why would you want me to come on? Really wanted you to come on. You are one of a few black um, NHS chairs. And I wanted you to share your experience. We've got a very diverse audience. But one of the things I'm growing in confidence, and it wasn't until the death of George Floyd, I never, ever spoke. It sounds silly because I'm black, but I would never say to people like, I'm black. This is important to me. I want to do X. I want to do that. It's really important that you know who I am. When um, that unfortunate incident happened, it really made me reflect and think, why don't you say anything? And I think a little bit of it's like, I want to, you know, like I want to hide, but I can't really hide. I'm like nearly six foot. I'm, you know, like I'm dark skinned, very dark, but kind of just, if I don't say anything, people won't notice, (laughs) like people won't say anything and just try to make myself as small as possible. But I've learned not to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to talk about it. It is really important. I want to contribute to the conversation. And I think having people on like yourself that I know you're not going to like this term, but you know, like you've, you've made it, your people look to you and think, how did he do that when in the NHS, you know, like racism is still, you know, like alive and kicking. I don't know how things work out sometimes because I became chair at Northmid uh, towards the end of 2019. And then within the early part of 2020, of course, we had uh, the pandemic, we had COVID. And then in May, we had the tragic death of George Floyd. At the same sort of time, people started to reflect on the impact of COVID the disproportionate impact of COVID on uh, black minority ethnic NHS professionals, social care professionals and communities. At the same time, we started seeing the the re-emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. So a lot of things came together and I found myself, I didn't put myself in that position, but I found myself being invited to speak at a number of online uh, events organized by different groups representing, for example, the Nigerian Nurses Association, for example. Then the NHS started having more discussions about it and I found myself in a position where I was having spoken at one event, someone invited me to speak at another. And I very quickly realized that it was important that I I took up the invitations. I spoke because, as you mentioned, I have a position. I have a position that enables me to to have a voice, and that voice is is listened to. So I think there is a responsibility, I feel a responsibility to speak, to speak out. And to your point, I suppose I have made it. You know, I'm at a stage of my career now where, you know, I, I don't, I don't need to worry about paying the mortgage. I've got a grown-up family. I don't need to worry about, you know, buying school shoes. And during my career, there were times where I wanted to speak out, and felt if I did, that would be the end of my career, because I like so many people i faced microaggression i felt i faced racism and you want to name it you want to call it out but you know if you do that then that could be a at best your career stagnating or at worst the end of your career but i'm in a position now where i don't need to worry about that so i feel an added responsibility a because i didn't speak out back then and I've carried some guilt around that because I feel that if I had spoken out, then, you know, maybe things would have been different now, which is absolutely naive and, and it's tosh. It's, you know, my speaking out in a meeting or at a conference 
15 years ago or whenever it would have been would not have affected things uh, today. But I say to people, I see myself as an activist now with a small a. You know, I, I don't go marching in the streets and don't carry placards and banners, but I do feel that it's a responsibility that I have that I welcome to speak out, to challenge, to question, and to not just accept. Um, I've described times when I had to swallow the bile, when I wanted to say something, but I, I knew that I couldn't. I'm not in that position now. Of course, I'm respectful. Of course, I am measured, but I hope that the points I make in the four that I have on the platforms I'm, I'm given are taken on board and they're important. Do you feel that for people that are listening to this and that term swallow the bile, so you want to say something, but you're not going to say it, what is more important? It's like your principles or your value or your job. And I get that we all have financial responsibilities, but when does your own well-being, sense of self-worth, principles override that? That's a really, really important question. And my initial immediate response is to say, that was then, this is now. I think the world has changed very, very much. And I speak to, I guess you'd call them millennials now, who, who certainly do not swallow the bile. They have a very different view. Going back to my upbringing, you know, my, as I mentioned, my parents came to England in 1955, and they came at a time when it wasn't about having a voice. You know, they, they came to work hard. They came to keep their head down, do the best they possibly could, make a contribution to this country, and then go back to Grenada at some point. It took them 30 years, 30 plus years before they went back, but they went back. So we were brought up, I'm one of three, we were brought up not to challenge to respect authority, to mind your P's and Q's. So there's a, a parallel part of my life that didn't give me the confidence, so to speak, at that point to, to question and challenge. And that that's not the case now. You know, I understand and I see younger people of Black, Af Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds are willing to challenge. They've got the power of social media. You know, the idea of, I don't know, in the mid-70s, pulling down a statue of someone and throwing it into a river, that sort of thing wouldn't happen. So what happened in those days were there were, there were riots. Mm -hmm. You know, the people gathered and people managed their responses in, in other ways. And we've seen that with over the years with Tottenham or, or Lewisham and, and, and so on and so forth. But I think where we are now, people are much more willing to stand up and say no. And we've seen that with footballers and we've seen that with Lewis Hamilton, the racing driver, you know, very high profile people. But equally, we're seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, how many black chief uh, chairs of NHS organisations are there? So I'll just get my facts straight. There are 233, I think, NHS trusts up and down the country. That's acute trusts, mental health trusts, community trusts, ambulance trusts. And there are 10 chairs from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. I think there are eight chief executives. What needs to happen to change that number and bring it up? And do we need to bring it up? Well, if I just reflect on my current situation at North Middlesex, North Middlesex, for those listeners who don't know, is a medium-sized hospital in North London. And we serve a population of around 350,000 people across Enfield and Haringey two very, very ethnically diverse uh, boroughs. Around 67% of our staff come from black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, backgrounds. And 
the symbolism of the Northmere appointing a black chair was significant and to a degree is still significant. We've recently appointed a new chief executive and we've appointed a black woman and that is extremely significant. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the, 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 not just the, the symbolism of diversity at the top of the NHS, but the impact that has on staff morale, the impact that has on people's belief in what is possible. When I was approached initially to throw my hat in the ring to become chair of North Mid, I was chair, sorry, I was a non-exec director on another NHS trust board. And when I was approached, I chuckled and I said, well, thank you very, very much, but they'll never appoint someone like me. So the, I guess it was a, a researcher said, why is that? And I said, well, I've been involved in the NHS for many, many years, and I can tell you they won't appoint someone like me. So in the end, she persuaded me to speak to one of the partners of the, of the executive search firm. And we spoke for an hour and she convinced me that it wasn't about my color, but she genuinely believed that I would be a strong candidate. So I thought, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Polish off the CV, uh, draft the covering letter, put it in, and that's probably the last I'll hear. But I got through a very difficult process and was appointed. And I've been reassured by many, many people that I was appointed because I was the best candidate who just happened to be black. The response I received and continue to receive from our staff it's just amazing. And similarly, this is no disrespect to our previous chief executive, who was absolutely brilliant. But the response within our trust to the appointment of a black woman as our chief executive, again, has been, has been pretty amazing. So it is important. Um, if you look at the makeup of the NHS uh, staff, especially in large conurbations like London and Birmingham and elsewhere, Leicester, it's really important that people see people like them at the top of or near the top of organisations. Do you like being a symbol? I don't like being a, a symbol, but I think it, it comes with the, the job. It comes with the territory. And I was a chief executive in the housing association and charitable sector for over 25 years. And there were very few chief executives at that, uh, at that time from vain backgrounds. So it's something that I understood and recognized from many years ago. And it comes with the job. You don't you don't go for these jobs if you don't understand that this, this is what comes with it. And it's appreciating the opportunities that opens up, but also the pressure it brings. And if you're someone like me who, you know, I, I've had this bizarre drive as a result of a belief that nothing I do is ever good enough, you put yourself under tremendous pressure because you, you, you never take a day off. You don't believe for a moment you can take a day off. And that can be that can be really very tough. And whilst that belief system stood me in good stead as a sports person, I, I played basketball to a high level many years ago, and that helped me become the best player I could have, I could have been, forgive me. It's very difficult when in a corporate setting, that's that's what drives you and as a result for many years i never celebrated success which made me difficult to work for you know we would win a tender and we'd, we'd be people would be really pleased that we won a tender to develop some new services for people with mental health problems in x or y borough and i was on to the next challenge and so one of my directors said just take a moment, take a step back and acknowledge what a great job we've all done. It would really, really help the team. So 
those are some of the uh, the additional pressures I think I've put on myself. And even to this day, I feel those pressures. Do you feel that somebody from an ethnic minority has to work twice as hard as their white counterparts to be seen as equal? Absolutely. I give, a, I give talks and I use a slide uh, in the talks that I give, which uh, is a quote from my, my dad. And I think it was around 1970, so that would have made me about 13. He said to all three of us, you have to understand being as good as will not be good enough. And what he meant by that was being as good as a white person is not going to be enough. You've got to be demonstrably better to be considered for anything. And I use that quote today. I still feel uh, that to a degree. What is better? Whether that is uh, your performance, whether that's the outcomes you deliver, whether that's the success of the organisations that, that, you, that, that you run, whether that is the quality of the work that you do, every indicator. If you're as good as the person, so if you're going for a job and you're as good as the person, a white person, you won't get the job. That was what he was trying to get us to understand. So, um, and you've talked about this because I've listened to your podcast. We talk about your work ethic. And I have a ridiculous work ethic, as, to, as do my uh, siblings. I have a sister and a brother. And I remember, I mean, sports been really important to me. And I remember saying to myself, you'll play against people who are more talented than you, but don't let anyone ever outwork you. And I found that I went a long way in my, in my sporting career. I played basketball. Because I know that you're quite tall, but I'm also quite tall. I'm about six foot six. And I was amazed at how far hard work got me, probably further than my talent on its own would have got me. It's interesting you say that. I was on a webinar um, with my friend Monique, who's been on the podcast, and Sam Alsop Hall, who's been on the podcast. I asked Sam his what is his entrepreneurial issue, and then which I'll never ask that question again because then Sam asked me in a live webinar, I nearly burst into tears. And I think my work ethic. Well, it's interesting. I thought my work ethic come from being fostered. Um, and wanting to kind of show my birth parents, like, look what you gave up. But now I'm thinking, is it, do I believe I have to, do I need, do I feel I need to be better than my counterparts? One thing that has come up is I was in a meeting and I know somebody was talking about, we talk about microaggressions, you talk about stereotypes and me not wanting to be seen as like the angry black woman. <laughs> like, so I, it does play, you know, like it's one of those ones. It's like, do you, do we have to play the game? Do we have to change ourselves? And the reason why I bring that up is because I felt very strongly about something and I kind of lent and it's all on zoom and I lent forwards and I could feel myself doing it. And in a split second, a split moment, I kind of, I leaned back and I managed to catch my, that thought went through my mind, like, just sit back, don't come across as, you know, like confrontational, don't play into that stereotype, don't wave your hands around. <laughs> um, you know, for anybody listening, you know, like, I suppose this is the reality, you want to get ahead You've got so much noise in your, even the most, you know, I'm confident, but I have imposter syndrome. That doesn't mean I'm not confident. It just means I have moments of doubt. And I'm trying to, is a wrestle. I, I do not want to conform, but yet I feel like I do need to a little bit. I do want to be myself, but I need to be mindful of the, in the room and how I position myself and 
somebody said to me, Tara, you're being quiet. And that is, I'm not a quiet person, but I am deliberately holding back because I never want to be seen as Tara thinks she knows it all. Tara likes to say, you know, I've got my own podcast. I can talk about myself all the time. (laughs) Um, But when I'm in a public arena, I'm very mindful of, I suppose it's quite strategic and it's how much of the game do we need to play? Or do you just think, screw it? I felt during my career, I had to play the game. As I said, I'm probably a little less than six foot six now as I'm old, but six foot six, a big man, you have to manage yourself. You have to manage your proximity. You can't stand too close to people. You can't raise your voice. You talk about waving your arms. No, you can't do that because all of that can be misread and misconstrued as being overly aggressive. And you can become, you can come across as quite intimidating. I've had that. I've had people say to me, you're, it's, you're very, you're very intimidating. And it's like, it's, and they say it not in a horrible way, you know, like, oh, t- I think they think it's a compliment, but it's not. <laughs> you know, like it is not. You, 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 subconsciously, you learn these techniques. You don't maintain eye contact for too long because that can be quite disconcerting uh, for people. So I learned all those techniques. I remember my wife opening our wardrobe and saying, look at this, look at this. I said, what? Every shirt is white or blue. Every suit is gray or blue. Why do you have some color? And I thought to myself, again, subconsciously, she was right. I had had a, a lot of suits, a lot of shirts, but they were all colors that were muted that allowed me to blend in a little bit because I thought if I started wearing bright colours and so on and so forth, you know, that would give all the wrong signals. That would be me saying, look at me, look at me. And I didn't want people to look at me in that way. So we kind of compromised. And I was very fortunate to be in a position to have my suits made because growing up in a fairly economically challenged household, you were always wearing clothes that were slightly too small. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and my mother used to look, when she bought me a pair of trousers, she'd look to see how much of a hem there was. So when I grew three inches in six months, she could take the hem down. But I got to a point where I was able to afford to have suits made. And so I compromised by having some very, very bright suit linings. The people that that know me will will know and perhaps remember in the days when we used to wear suits that, you know, had some, you know, half decent suits, but some very, very bright pink and green and and light blue linings. You just have to try and manage yourself. You have to manage your, your voice. You have to manage your approach. Otherwise it can be, you know, your body language can be misconstrued. Do you think, I think this is a really honest conversation. A little bit of me just thinks this is reality. And then the other part of me feels really sad. Like, is this the message? Is this the message that we're giving? Like, don't be, you know, people say bring your whole self to work. And it's like, but not if you're black. (laughs) I, I, I mentored a really, really talented HR manager, a black, a black guy, late twenties, and we were talking about his career, and he, he wanted to become a director, HR director, HROD director. And he asked me the question, did I think he could achieve his ambition and keep his dreadlocks? Because he had been indicated to him. No one had come out and said it directly, but it had been indicated that perhaps if you really want to become a director, then having dreadlocks might not might not serve you well. And he was desperately worried that in order to achieve his professional ambitions, he'd have to cut off his dreadlocks, which was so important to him. And I said, you better not. 
If any organization suggests that to you, that's not an organization for you, you know? And it is that sense of bringing your whole self to work, being yourself, and having the freedom that that gives you. You One less thing to worry about, one less thing to try and manage, because that can be quite wearing over the life of a career, over the course of a career. Have to keep managing that, and we've seen that with black people to a point. But you know, we've seen that around sexuality, where people who are gay have had to or felt for many years they couldn't come out at work, and when they finally do, it's freedom. You know, they're able just to be themselves as opposed to pretending. And I think that's really what's more and more important now in all walks of kind of corporate life. I think that I, I did think I, because I work for myself, well, I say I work for, you know what it's like, you think you work for yourself and you've got like 10 bosses. (laughs) Um, When I, I used to work at a university and when I, I remember being so upset and my sister said to me, stop focusing on how you feel now. Focus on what, how, where you want to be and how you want to feel. And I remember writing down in my, I had a lovely journal. So I will work somewhere where I feel like I belong. And I, I never thought I would, I never aspired to work for myself. Just it happened. And I found myself in primary care. And I do feel like this is, this is my space. Like I absolutely love it. I feel like I belong. However, I have just said to you, and I'm doing it now, I feel like I can do it in front of you because I'm animated when I talk. As much as I I thought I felt, I brought my whole self to work, but there is something I'm very mindful how, or I try in my mind, you know, like what's in my mind and what's in reality are two different things of, I don't, I may, may, tone down just tiny parts of my personality or my presence just so I don't potentially play into the stereotype when I'm with certain people you know like there are certain people I wouldn't think twice about it because they know me and I know them and that's cool but there are other people where I'm a bit like until I know I can bring my whole self I might bring something back and hopefully as time goes on that I will only surround myself with people from the get-go where I'm like, yeah, this is me. But I think that I'm not, I thought I was there, but this conversation has made me realise I'm not quite there. What interesting is, I mentioned earlier that I, I have a little consultancy praxis that when I set it up, it was very much focused on middle managers. Working in social care as a chief executive, I very quickly learned that the people who really got things done were the middle managers, the care home managers, for example, the operations managers in our home care teams and others. And when I had the opportunity to set up my consultancy, did a lot of training and focused on middle managers. But what's happened over the last year plus is I've become a bit of a go-to consultant working with organizations who want to do more than just virtue signal following the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and people now understanding the impact of COVID and so on and starting to understand the level of racial inequality in society. And I say to people, more than happy to work with you but I'm not an EDI consultant. I'm not an EDI trainer. So I'm not going to work in that space. But what I am able to help you do is understand the implications for you strategically about what you need to do to change your organization, to create an environment in which people feel comfortable. So I bring all of that experience, the experience that you've been talking about, and I bring to the fore the fact that in their organizations, they will have many, many people who carry that the pressure that, that we talked about. And for them to be successful in this brave new world post-George Floyd and post-Black Lives Matter, it's not about the virtue signaling of 
oh, I know, let's run a little reverse mentoring. That'll sort the problem out. Or let's just do some unconscious bias training. More and more organizations are realizing, actually, that's not going to do it. If they want to be successful going forward, and if they want to be a place that people want to go and work, they've got to think much more about what we call fairness. Okay, this is not just because you know there are people who are starting to suffer Black Lives Matter fatigue, and there are people saying, "Well, all this focus on race and all of this sort of stuff," when actually the big challenge is one of fairness. Okay, people want to work for organisations that are fair, whether you are black white, straight, gay, doesn't really matter. And I think that's the, that's the big challenge going, going forward. Mm-hmm. So to work with organizations like that, and I'm working with one at the moment, working with their executive team, who are all white, really nice people, would not consider themselves to be racist at all, but who admit this is a challenge for them that they, they're not prepared for. They don't know how to deal with it. And they need someone to come in and work with them to help them understand what they need to do as an organization. So I think that's that's where we're that's where we're at the moment. And so last kind of few questions around when you said when you introduced yourself, you said I'm an ally. Are you an ally of what and who? It's interesting. I spoke recently and the Topic of the talk was, is allyship the final frontier? And I said, uh, yes, I think it is the final frontier because to be an ally, you have to do the work. And you may all see a hashtag dotted here and there, do the work. Being an ally starts with you. It's you being curious about your journey and understanding what you know and what you don't know and going out of your way to to learn about what you don't know. It's not about a series of actions per se. It is about understanding that it's a lifelong journey. It's being willing to put yourself in difficult situations where you feel uncomfortable in the same way that I've mentioned earlier, where I felt uncomfortable walking into a conference, looking around to a sea of white faces and recognize that and it's about seeing people for who they are it's about seeing and it's about understanding and appreciating people's journeys it's about wanting to know their story so as a chair of a trust i meet lots and lots and lots of people and generally speaking my first question to them is tell me your story because i want to know who they are and that can be quite disarming for people because they're expecting to say, I'm a consultant X, Y, or Z, or I'm a clinical A, B, or C. And I say, no, I want to know who you are. And having those discussions in organizations can be quite difficult. So for me, being an ally is being interested in people, being appreciative of you as an individual. It's believing your story. It's wanting to understand why you think the way that you think. And that invites a conversation about your background. Well, actually, I grew up in this environment. I always say being an ally starts in childhood. It starts with the neighborhood that you grew up in. It starts with who did you see in the shops? It starts with who did you see at school? It starts with did your parents ever say, don't go to that neighborhood? or prefer not to play with these people, and so on and so forth. And it's being comfortable in that environment. And it's about seeing, actually, people are people. And it's not about judging. It's not about the stereotypes. It's not about the myths and misconceptions. And it is interesting that we're seeing it now with England footballers taking the knee and how that is being misconstrued, you know, most recently, the conversation around white privilege, how that's been twisted, and, and so on and so forth. So it's people challenging that. Well, actually, no, that's not what white privilege is. And I understand why England footballers are taking the knee and footballers are taking the knee. And it's not about Black Lives Matter being a Marxist organisation wanting to overthrow democracy. Wherever that came from, you can part <laughs> And, and, and so on and so forth. So being an ally, I think, is being 
comfortable to see people for who they are and to support people where they are. So I don't see allyship in, in, a, in a simplistic way. I think allyship is actually really complicated. We all have our own prejudices. You know, everyone does, I think, one way or another. And it's recognizing that, it's appreciating that, but also it's then questioning yourself and challenging yourself and ensuring that you are in a position where you listen to people and you listen to their stories and you understand where they come from and you understand their journey and you support them to be the best they can be. Do you know, I could talk to you. You're going to have to come back for part two and part th- three and part four. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you. Um, it has been a pleasure, uh, a genuine pleasure. And uh, I look forward to continuing to listening to your podcasts and reading your blogs because I think you're an amazing person. So thank you so much for your time. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do it's really really funny you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.